with you. I feel like the Lord is saying, bigger is not always better in your fellowship. And you know how God sees it is he's wanting us to go deeper and for that depth to penetrate into the rest of our lives and for relationships to be raw and genuine and exposed and there's something special you have here. Um, Thank you for saying that. Mm -hmm. I, I've said that to them. Now for somebody else to say it to them, it's wonderful. Yeah. And I've actually, I was talking with somebody at Marvel because here you have been uh, head of International Lutheran Renewal and met with, you meet with people all over the world and you've had influence over many, many, many leaders and there's something something so noble about you. You're still working with the leaders in the Twin Cities and who have huge churches. And you are one of their mentors and comrades. And there's something about the nobility about being willing to be obscure. Yeah. Quality. You know, David was very obscure when God chose him. And not seen, most of, if you think about the Bible stories, not too many people were famous. Hannah was not famous. Elizabeth was not famous. Mary was not famous. David became famous. But most of the people that really were movers and shakers were hidden. And I think God is looking for the nobodies. In, in Romans 4, in the message, it says, God made something out of Abraham when he was a nobody. And he made him a somebody. And he's kind of working on us to get us to be turned into nobody so he can use us. So um, before, I, I just wanted to share a little story about, uh, to maybe to introduce Axel. But I, I wanted to share something with you from Heidi Baker. I... I've been reading her their book. She has a book called Birthing the Miraculous. And there's this chapter in there about deeper still. And she says a frog starts out in the water as a tadpole and then comes out on land. And she says, I want to be the opposite. I want to start out on land and go into the water until I'm living in the water and breathing underwater. And... It's from Ezekiel, where they see the waters that are ankle deep and knee deep and waist deep and then to your head. And, when you, and, and you're willing to go into the place where you actually let go of your soul, let go of control. You can still, when you're, most people want to just be walking around and experience the gifts of the Spirit and still have control. But there is a place that they're talking about that I think is going to be commonplace before Jesus comes back where we're so given over so that we don't have control and we let God have our everything and we depend on him instead of relying on our self-confidence and so she just there's just a phrase about about going deeper still and going into the water and the Lord said, she was walking into the water in the ocean in Mozambique, and the Lord said, this is all it takes. Just step in. Allowing God to carry us when we don't understand what's happening can feel frightening. 
Sometimes we may feel as if we're about to drown. He comforts us only by promising then when we let go, we actually will die. That's the comfort. After death, there is a new resurrection life. And even then, there's a place of deeper still. Some may hesitate, make excuses, and step away because the prospect of immersion looks dangerous. Some will think they're not ready to swim that far down and will wonder why they're being thrown into deep water when they don't even know how to swim. I believe the Lord would tell you not to worry. If you jump in, he'll catch you, and then you will drown in his deep love. Whenever we do choose to jump, he will pull us right down so we're forced to learn how to breathe in the Holy Spirit's realm. God is calling us to be a people who can breathe underwater. We have kept our heads above water long enough. Being in over our heads and out of control is precisely what he wants. Beneath the surface, the plants and wildlife are very different. At first, everything about the environment seems incredibly strange. I feel that the Lord is inviting us into a place we have been afraid to live in, the supernatural realm of his kingdom, where his manifest presence surrounds and holds us like water in the ocean's depths. We were created to breathe in this realm. We can be permanently immersed in the glory of his love. We simply have to drown. Heidi Baker, Birthing the Miraculous. The whole book is like that. Um, I just want to tell you briefly our story to introduce Svenaxel. I was an exchange student in Denmark. Naomi might know this. We were college roommates. And uh, when I was there, I got baptized in the Holy Spirit because I did not work out in the family that I stayed with, and I ended up living with Sven Axel Conrad, who was a pastor of a Pentecostal church, and his wife and his three children. And I experienced, because they had lived in Africa, they knew a different kind of Jesus than the one I grew up with. It was a resurrection Jesus. Like, Jesus is alive, and he's present, and he's going to answer my prayers today. And I came back, and I said, God, I want you to write my story for me. I want to let go of the pen and let you choose whatever you want to do. And I want you to write, if you want me to be married, I want you to arrange my marriage for me. If you don't, I just, I can't choose. I want you to choose for me. And he gave me Isaiah 54, sing, O barren one, you who never bore a child. For more are the children of the desolate one than she who has a husband. And, and I thought that was his choice. And it, in that chapter, it says, Jesus will be your bridegroom. You won't feel shame. And it was true. I didn't feel shame because I felt chosen by God. And, and I, 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 I think I would have been satisfied with that. But about 13 years ago, the Lord started deepening this longing that even though I had a rich life working with kids in a Christian school and had lots of spiritual children, it was like, there's something more. And I had this sense that, that I could go on serving the Lord in this normal way, but I'd be missing out on my destiny if I didn't press in deeper. And at some point, I, I thought, maybe the Lord wants me to be married. And, and somebody said to me, well, if you did get married, what kind of a man would you want to marry? And I didn't have a list up to that point. And I said, someone who is deep and seasoned and mature 
and a leader in the body of Christ and someone who has an international ministry I can travel with. I want someone who loves well. I want a story with God's fingerprints on it. I want a prophetic picture of how much Jesus loves his bride. And then as an afterthought, I said, it probably would have to be somebody whose wife died. And the next morning, I got a phone call that the mom in this family had passed away. In fact, if I looked at it, it was actually about the same hour that I said it, that she had passed away. It was almost as if she was passing me a baton. And uh, the next day after that, I called to give my condolences and not expect, not connecting anything. But in that phone, phone conversation, they had been so... He had been fighting for his wife's health and life from cancer for 14 months and had devoted everything. Was no longer involved in a church, and so that was his full-time job, was to pray for her healing and didn't want to give way to unbelief. And... Um, you know about Yentelavin, don't you? Yeah. You haven't told them about Yentelavin? Well, Yentelavin is this Scandinavian idea that don't try too hard, don't risk too much, don't be too big. Just stay down low, don't get a big head. And it's really strong in the Scandinavian countries. And even when they, when Eni passed away, there were people that were somewhat in their condolences were saying, well, you should have you should have allowed for her to die, the possibility, so you could have said goodbye. You shouldn't have tried so hard all the way, thinking they were condoling, giving condolence, but and actually criticizing. And um, I think I'm just going to sing part of that song. They, um, they ended up, uh, they were still praying for her resurrection, and I was joining them. And and in his brokenness, in a three-minute conversation, I was overpowered. He was completely broken, but his spirit was intact. And his spirit overpowered me, and I got off the phone, thought, what was happening? And I was still praying for her to be raised from the dead. And I kept getting interrupted with these thoughts of a wedding that I was going to marry Svenaxel. And I thought, this can't be right. I said, no. Rise, Eni, rise. We're praying for her to be raised from the dead. And I even got my, they were believing four days for Lazarus. There's still a chance. They're still praying. Not even, you know, they, the morgue came to get her and they were still believing. And even hoping at the funeral at some point, one of his kids was. But I kept having these impressions of a wedding. And I thought, this is crazy. And the Lord said, this is what I would do for a man who had no plan B. I've already provided for him. He doesn't know it yet. And um, I ended up going to the funeral. And on the way to the funeral, I wanted a prophetic story, and I realized that the morgue had come to get them six days before Easter. And something rang a bell on the way to Atlanta. Six days before the Passover, Mary took this pint of nard and poured it all out, and everybody called it a waste. And they had, and someone had said this this prayer that Svenaxel and his family had prayed for his wife. They had uh, been asked to leave their church because the church didn't want revival, 
And so they were all alone. And someone said, it's because that God wanted pure faith and hope and love that he might raise her from the dead. One more little story is that when we prayed for resurrection, one of the, my, my pastors here said, I think there was enough faith for her to be raised from the dead. And God said, do you want to me, me to raise your body, Eni, or do you want me to resurrect my bride? And that there was some kind of an exchange that was taking place that God was saying, uh, there's enough faith, but I want to do something bigger with this faith, with this poured out ointment that like you're being poured out, Jesse. So here's the song. I, I ended up I ended up in Atlanta and I realized heaven was singing a song over them and I heard it all night in the plane and I ended up singing it at the reception for the funeral. Six days before the Passover two thousand years ago. Mary took a pint of nard, it was all she owned. It was for love, she took a risk. It was for love, she gave it all. And she kept pouring and pouring and pouring till it was all poured out, till it was all poured out. The people said, everybody knows you can't just give yourself away like that. What a foolish waste, what do you have to show for it? Mary, oh Mary, oh Mary, oh Mary, what will you do now? What will you do now? And Mary said, I do not know what my future holds. All I know is I gave it all for love. I gave it all for love. And Jesus said, leave her alone. What she did this day will be remembered. And for all eternity you will say, Aren't you the one? Aren't you the one who gave it all for love? We recognize the fragrance that was poured out on that day. Six days later at the Passion, 2,000 years ago, Jesus took up the cross. He knew he had to go. It was for love. He took a risk. It was for love. He gave it all. And he kept pouring and pouring and pouring till his blood was all poured out till his love was all poured out. The people said, everybody knows you can't just give yourself away like that. What a foolish waste. What will you have to show for it? Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, oh Jesus, what will you do now? What will you do now? The father said, leave him alone. What he did this day will be remembered. And for all eternity you will say, you are the one, you are the one who gave it all for love. We recognize the fragrance that was poured out on that day. And Jesus said, the price is high, the cost is great, but there is not anything I would not do for my bride. Love is expensive, it cost me everything, but there is not anything I would not do for my bride. The funeral was on Saturday before Easter. Six days before the Passion, just a week ago, this precious family said goodbye. They had to let her go. It was for love. They took a risk. It was for love. They gave it all. And they kept pouring and pouring and pouring till they were all poured out. Till they were all poured out, the people said, 
Everybody knows you can't just give yourself away like that. What a foolish waste. What do you have to show for it? We could have told you to be more careful. What will you do now? What will you do now? The family said, we do not know what our future holds. All we know is we gave it all for love. We gave it all for love. And Jesus said, the price is high, the cost is great, but there is not anything I would not do for my bride. Love is expensive. It cost them everything, but there is not anything I would not do for my bride. The father said, it's only Saturday today. Resurrection is coming. Resurrection is coming. Eni means one. And Eni will be many on that day, on that day. Yes, Eni will be many on that day. This was a momentary loss of a lifetime. Just a momentary loss of a lifetime. But on that day, you'll surely say, nothing compares to the weight of glory here. For any will be many on that day. And I came back from the funeral and ended up waking up to the fragrance of the Lord in my room. And the Lord had me carry Svenaxel in intercession for about a year and to encourage him from a distance. And just from a spirit to spirit, no other relationship. And the long, long story short is 10 years later, he called and asked if he could take me on a date. And within a month, he was in, still in Denmark in January, January 1st, and he was going to come here. He goes to California in May, and he said, I could stop by Minnesota in June to take you on a date. And it was uh, within, you know, I, there was 10 years of experience for me to say, okay. <laughs> and... Uh, but then something happened within that first month. Somebody came up to me at a church and said that the Lord was shifting a season for me and it would be a season of receiving love. And the day before, I bought a book called Receiving Love. And he said, grabbed me by, from behind the shoulders and said, the Father's got your back. <laughs> and at, within that few days, uh, we, didn't, we felt, realized we were actually falling in love with each other. He got permission from his five children to take me on a date. They all, the judges all gave a thumbs up like on America's Got Talent. <laughs> but they didn't give permission to fall in love from a distance. So he was in Africa for three months and came back in May. And I'm a teacher. I've been a teacher at North Heights Christian Academy. And I had to decide, was I going to teach a whole nother year or whatever? So the kids gave permission to fall in love from a distance. And so... I gave up my teaching job and bought a wedding dress and he bought a ring and we arranged for where we would get married and the place had been booked for 18 months and it opened up two hours after we called and so my family could go there so it was a very private wedding and just before he came he's been in deepest darkest grief for 10 years and everybody saw him with this grief and incon inconsolable and nobody knew about me. 
So a week before he came, he emailed 800 of his closest friends <laughs> and told them the backstory. And then on the 4th of July, he posted it when we got engaged. And then after that, he went to the summer camp where he, he's often a speaker, surrounded by all these people who were in shock <laughs> and giving him high fives. So we, we feel like, I feel like my call... We got married in September and then had a three-week honeymoon in Tanzania and back to Denmark, and then we've lived in Tanzania and continuing his work. And I feel like God's put some things in Svenaxel, revival and other things, and the enemy thought he had him down for the count. And sometimes when God deals you a deep, deep, dark blow, like a Lazarus, he allows the death to happen so that when glory comes upon them, it's resurrection power, and it's from another place. And sometimes he allows the deep, dark places. Because one time I saw that Svenaxel was scuba diving and had gone to a very, very deep level and found a key. And somehow, and then he came up exultant holding this key. And this key had a master lock that could unlock any treasure that was less deep than the place he had been. You know, like Jesus went to the deepest steps and got keys from hell, and he could unlock anything. That God would give him keys to be able to unlock when other people have been in sorrow or struggle. And and I just I just feel like God's when it doesn't make sense what's going on in your life, and when God allows it, your story looks just a little bit different from heaven's viewpoint. And sometimes your desperation is what releases heaven. And your life really, our lives really are about releasing heaven and not just our circumstances. And I think, Jenna, what you're going through, such beautiful grace and dignity and trust that you're like a Mary of Bethany saying, no, like Mary saying, may it be to me as you have said, and you have no idea how you're moving heaven with your life and how fragrant you are to heaven. So we have a little prayer card, and they can be back there if you want to grab a prayer card and pray for us as we go on our new adventures, and we're excited to see where God's going to take us. And Svenaxel has many, many, many stories. Did Did it come up? Okay. Yeah, that's okay. No, no, no problem. Um, if you want to watch it, little videos, we're going to post them on our Facebook page. But Sven Axel has some amazing, he could speak for hours about the miracle stories, about his reconciliation ministry, about God calling him to revival. And I don't know what he's going to share, but I think it'll be something we need to hear. morning. What an honor to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us to come, Paul. Maybe I should just read a word or two before I start sharing. A word of... People feel comfortable to stay a little longer than what we expect. 
And if you need to go, feel free to go. You go when you when you need to go. And we'll finish when we're ready to finish. So but you you do as you need to do. Africans so, go for what? Three or four days, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, a word from Isaiah 41, 9, 10. I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not rejected you. And next, next page, Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep you over you. And when you walk through fire, you will not be burned, and the flames will not set you ablaze. And then this verse from Matthew, and I'll try to combine them, Matthew 16. Did you just get that Bible? <laughs> <laughs> just recently, yes. <laughs> uh, in Matthew 16, Jesus he said in verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not, will not overcome it. Amen. My parents were missionaries in China. I was born in China. Grew up in Africa because when China closed, 1949, they couldn't continue, so all missionaries were asked to leave, or, and they started closing churches. Uh, the interesting thing, just before I go further, there were about 700,000 Christians in China when Mao Zedong took over, and now followed persecution, now followed all these years where the communists took over, and you would wonder what happened then. But one day Mao Zedong was gone after a period where he had killed so many, many, many millions and many of them were Christians. And when you then heard the results after the reign of Mao Zedong, instead of 700,000 Christians, there were more than 50 million Christians at that time. And today, close to 200 million people in China who have accepted Jesus. Well, so when I hear about this, I get thrilled about no matter what happens in the world, the gates of hell, all the evil powers of darkness cannot and will not be able to conquer the church of God. And even as we now hear of the Al-Shabaab attacking in Mozambique, they've been confined to Somalia before and then they spread to Kenya and to Tanzania. I'll t t tell something more about it later. Uh, killing Christians and burning churches and now they came through Kenya to Tanzania to Mozambique and have started the same things there. And uh, I just want to encourage you to know that no matter what happens, he who said, I will build my church, he is going to conquer. So um, it's like if you imagine a, a football game, I know many people in this area, they may be supporters of the Vikings, I don't know, <laughs> who are their opponents. So when those two are going to have the next game, is there anybody who can, who can predict who's going to win? 
<laughs> what I'm saying is Jesus says there are two teams. And before the match is over, before the game is over, before the last minute, he has already proclaimed which team is going to win. It's my church. So I came to Denmark. I was only 16 days old when my parents left China and uh, came to Denmark and my dad couldn't settle. As he said in a normal church, seeing the same people every, every Sunday, he had this urge of reaching the unreached, the people who have never heard the gospel. So in 1953, they went to Tanzania, which in those days was called Tanganyika, a British colony. And I grew up in Tanzania from when I was five until I was 18. In our home, we spoke Danish outside, four African languages, and then I was sent to a British boarding school, and there I had to learn other languages, and then I later was sent to a Swedish school, and I had to learn another language, and there I had to learn German too. And When I came home as an 18-year-old young man, I was totally mixed up, and when people asked me to stand up and say something, I don't know what came out of my mouth, but <laughs> my, my mother tongue was actually the language I knew the least. So, uh, I speak eight, eight languages. Uh, but when I, when I was called to preach, I said, God, no. People laugh at me, you know, in Denmark. So I went to Bible college, and I wouldn't, uh, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest anybody else do what I did. But what I did, I found out they had a lot of cows on the fields. So every Sunday we were sent out to preach in churches, and every Saturday I'd go and start uh, experimented to preach for the cows and every Saturday it was the most faithful congregation I've ever had actually uh, and so understanding you know <laughs> and they really chewed on the message and uh, there was an electric fence and when we had prayer they really got hit by the power you know oh, I'm just joking but that was how I, how I learned to express myself and then on Sundays I'd preach the same message and it didn't have the same results in church <laughs> So I had a cow uh, assembly. <laughs> well, growing up in a, in, a, in a missionary family, and especially in a remote area, in China they lived nine days horse ride from the nearest doctor or the nearest town. And during the war, before I was born, uh, when the Japanese had occupied China, there was no communication. They didn't get any letters and no money for five years. And I've been reading letters they wrote, you know, it's been tough times, or they really struggled. But God provided for them. Someday one would come with a little bowl of eggs or maybe some rice, and they would survive. And it's incredible. When 1945, even this was before I was born, my dad, he had, he got the typhoid fever and was unconscious for three weeks. And my mom thought that she was going to die. And after three weeks of unconsciousness, two Chinese people came in. And in those days, these were farmers from the mountains. They had never gone to school, didn't know anything about the world outside mainland China. And they knelt at his bed, and one of them started speaking in this prayer fluently English. And thanked the Lord that he was going to heal the missionary. And after saying this and a lot of encouraging words, he switched over and said exactly the same prayer in Swedish. And uh, the next morning, the 25th of October, 1945, my dad wrote in his journal, God called me back to life. 
And many of those kind of stories, you know, and even in Africa, when we'd only been in Tanzania uh, half a year when he had a heart attack and I was hospitalized in Dar es Salaam. And uh, after three months, he was called in to the doctor in charge and he said, Mr. Conrad, it's not advisable for you to go up country. Uh, you have to remember a hundred or even 70 years ago, those parts of Africa were called the white man's graveyard because of uh, hostile people, but also because of incurable diseases, tropical diseases and things like that. So he sat at the, the, the doctor's office and he told him, I wouldn't advise you to go up, get a normal job, a normal job, and go back to Europe, have an office job, and you probably live a lot of years. And my dad, he wrote in his journal, how could I ever give up the calling God has put on my life to preach to the unreached people, to go to those who've never heard? And then he wrote, I'd rather die than I'd give up. They moved to a place where there was no water, so they couldn't build a normal house uh, in the central Tanzania. They just put up a, a shed with corrugated iron, and that was my home for the first six years in Africa. We had lions lying on our doorstep. Tw tw Twelve of our dogs were eaten by lions and leopards and elephants. They enjoyed our garden. And this was wild Africa in those days. But that's when I learned to pray because when lions were outside roaring and I'd heard how these lions, as easy as anything, could come through the windows and grab someone and pull them out. If you've heard about the man-eating lions in Kenya and in Savo, that was that kind of animals. So I learned to pray. I said, God, please <laughs> deliver me from the lions. I don't want to be lion food, so please protect me. And... Uh, when I was seven, I was sent to an English boarding school 500 miles from home. And I'd only been there six months when I got the message that my dad passed away. Suddenly had a heart attack and he died. After only being there eight months, they had preached the gospel. They hadn't built a church or anything. They were having gatherings under a tree and prayed for the first 80 people and... Um, I didn't go home to the funeral, it's too far, and I came home at Christmas, and my mom wrote in her journal one evening when I saw she was really sad, sitting on the couch, I went over to her, and put my hand on her shoulder, I said, Mom, don't cry, don't be worried, I'm going to take over Dad's job, and I started preaching when I was eight years old, and so I really believe in children, uh, getting, you know, calling by God. I used to tell people, if you give me ten uh, no, if you give me a bunch of young people for 10 minutes, I guarantee some of them will be called to mission, to be missionaries. And uh, yeah, some of you will get something, I believe. I am so thrilled uh, that God called me when I was young. When I was nine years old, I wrote an essay when I when I, when I grow up, I want to be an, a missionary, not because my parents are missionaries, but because I know this is the only way you can really change the world. And I had seen when missionaries came and preached the gospel, they brought education, they built schools, they built hospitals, they built clinics. And I had seen in, in Africa, you know, there are tribes there, if they get a disabled child, a blind or a crippled child, they would tie them to a tree in the forest and hope the hyenas would come or the lions and, and, and kill them. So you never find any disabled people in those tribes because they're not wanted. 
But when the gospel came and penetrated those areas, the whole thing changed. So the gospel, I seen that, and as a young kid, I said, I want to do that. I want to, I want to, I want to be bring the gospel because this is the only thing that can change this world. And when I was nine years old, I was at a boarding school. There were 900, seven, uh, 600 kids from all over Africa there. And I had this urge, I'm called to preach, but what can I do? And then, by accident, I got a <coughs> hold of a, an American evangelist magazine called Abundant Life, or Robert in Tulsa. And I thought, I'm going to write a letter to this man. <laughs> so I wrote a letter when I was nine years old to all Roberts. And I said, uh, I have a passion for Jesus. I want to win. Do you have any tools? Uh, do, you, do you have any tracts? And two months later, I got a package from Tulsa with tracts. And I remember it was a white, big one like this with red letters. It said, warning, Jesus is coming soon. And I passed this out to all. This was a boarding school. Everybody was there, you know. Uh, usually at night, the matron and the teacher would come and switch off the lights and say goodnight to us. And this evening, about 10 o'clock, they came. And in their hands, they had this, these tracts. And the head teacher, the principal of the school, was with them and said, have you passed out these things out? They traced it somewhere to me. <laughs> and I sat up in my bed, and I was quite, you know, happy because I'd done something for Jesus. Yes. And they told me, all over the campus... Kids are crying, believing Jesus is coming tonight. <laughs> and they forbid me passing out uh, re religious literature, as they called it, and confiscated everything I had. Mm. Now, in my room, there were four other boys, one from Scotland, one from Italy, one from Ireland, and one from Germany. And when the lights are out, they came to my bed and said, could you pray for us? We'd like to accept Jesus. So the next day I wrote a new letter to all Roberts. Now I have four people who have accepted Jesus. Could you please send me some Bibles? <laughs> and two months later I got a box with 40 Bibles. I was only nine. So every Tuesday evening we'd sit in our room and we'd read the Bible. And that's how I started teaching the Bible. <laughs> teaching is not a word actually, but sharing. So I've had this urge, you know. And I remember when I was eight years old and I was preaching for, to a bunch of people. Actually, I was. And my mom told me, uh, wrote in a letter. So Axel came home and he was so thrilled. He said, there were two today who gave their lives to Jesus. And this has been the best that's ever happened to me, seeing people accepting Christ. So I grew up with this. Make a very long story short, I came back to Denmark and I told you about my uh, difficulties in preaching. Uh, I think what rescued me when I came back to Denmark, you know, all these years in Africa, coming back, uh, we, some people have said a missionary, when a missionary comes home, it's like someone coming back from Mars, you know, the <laughs> everything's so different than the thing you're used to. Uh, but I fell in love with, uh, quite quickly with a, a girl called Eni. We got married when we were 22, and... We, after finishing college, Bible college and all these things, we came to Copenhagen and had this yearning. Ah, we want to see God. We want to see the New Testament be repeated. We want to see the Acts of the Apostles. We don't want ordinary church life. We had this, we want to see it. And um, now you have to remember, this was in the, in the 69, 70, 70, in the beginning. So things were quite different then, at least in Copenhagen. We had 
hippie, uh, you know, movement all over the world, which meant that everything was accepted. You know, on the streets of Copenhagen in the summertime, you you could do anything and people accepted you. You could sit there and with the Hare Krishna people ringing their bells or the, us Christians playing a guitar on the streets and sharing about Jesus. Everything was acceptable. So this is what happened. Actually, our church, from, from being a very uh, normal, conservative, traditional Pentecostal church, we rejoiced when five new people came in one year. But then something happened, Easter Day, 1970. And this has always been such an encouragement for me to say that even an old church can be changed in one day. What happened was Jesus people from California came to Denmark. <laughs> and a Saturday evening before Easter Sunday, we heard that there were some places, and we were, of course, eager to go, so we went and listened to these barefooted uh, <laughs> people who just come out of the Hyde uh, Asbury milieu and came over and singing with their guitars and the, the spirit was there and for the first time we heard uh, people singing in the spirit and prophesying you know what and uh, the pastor and I I was his assistant we said could you come and visit our church and as I usually say Jesus people had no program so of course they could come the next day and they came the next day you know <laughs> so they invaded our church about 30 of them with their guitars and barefooted and people were looking at them you know as if they came from Mars uh, they sang they witnessed and Jesus came down we had an old lady in our church she was 90 years old she was deaf and blind she came to service every Sunday though she couldn't hear and couldn't see she came up right after the service and took the pastor's hand in mine and said, you have to grab this. I said, what do you mean? She hadn't seen anything. She hadn't heard anything. And then she said, this is the same spirit I experienced in 1907 when a pastor, a, a Methodist pastor, came from Azusa Street and I was baptized in the spirit. And this pastor was a Norwegian Methodist pastor called Thomas Ball Barrett. He came over to Los Angeles to raise money for a home for elderly people. But when he was introduced to what happened at Azusa, he forgot everything about money, <laughs> came back, and he said, all of Scandinavia on fire. So we grabbed this. And from that day, from having five new people in a church in a year, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds on the streets of Copenhagen, we would pray for people. They would kneel on the streets. We would have healings on the streets of Copenhagen. And it was a fantastic time. Revival had broken out. And you know, uh, a servant of God is like a fish in the water when that happens, you know. You don't even have to think of what to do. The Spirit guides you and leads you, you know. I used to tell people you could stand up in church and just say Istanbul and people get saved because of this. The Spirit would be so powerful there, you know. So it didn't matter what you said. There was so much happening, you know. The Spirit of God moved. Now, on top of this, when we are on the peak of revival, God said, I want you to move to the northern part of Denmark to a city called Alborg. That's where Jenny and I met later. And I used to tell people it was as if you came, you had been living in the book of Acts, and then you moved into the book of Leviticus. 
if you kind of get the idea of the difference. <laughs> you know, Leviticus, there's a lot of laws. And <laughs> well, uh, and I said, why, God, this can't be you. You know, because we want a blessing to be greater than the last blessing. And we are sometimes only satisfied if we have, you know, an excessive feeling. It goes from glory to glory, you know. And we, we don't like when it goes from glory to something less. <laughs> and this is what actually happened. And 12 years went by and, and we we're praying and praying. God sent a revival. And, uh, and uh, I remember had a, 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 we wanted to see the he healings of God and God do miraculous things. And one day, a family called, non-Christians, and said, is it true that you pray for sick people? And they said, yes, we do. Could we bring our son? He has a, the terminal phase of cancer. And I said, yes. So Thursday evening, an ambulance came with him, and they put him in on a stretcher in front of the church as I preached. And he accepted Jesus. The next day, I went to the hospital to visit him. And as I came up to this, the fourth uh, floor and came out of the elevator I heard someone singing the same chorus that we had been singing a worship chorus in the day before this young man sang you know so it could be heard all over the hospital and I didn't ask where is Klaus his name was Klaus I came in and he was sitting up and his parents around him lifting his hands and worshiping Jesus and I said yes but the next day they called me and said Klaus died in the night and I was devastated. And I said, and this had been, to be honest, a period of one year, nearly every sick person I prayed for died. So it wasn't a good <laughs> statistic. So, so, so don't go there and let him pray for you, you know. <laughs> but I came out from the hospital, I went into the park, and I said, God, this is unfair. You have said in your word that you will heal the sick. Why? I'm quitting. And I decided to quit because I couldn't anymore. Then I heard a voice in the park, an audible voice, and I hadn't heard God speak like that before. And I turned around to see who was speaking, and there was no one else in the park. And the voice spoke and said, Who do you think you are? I have not called you to save people or to heal people. I have only called you to preach my word and I'll do the rest. And I was lying in the grass and I come, came up and went back home to my wife and said, let's rededicate our lives. We want to serve him. I'm not running away. By that time, we had a very famous evangelist in Sweden uh, who prayed for sick and so many healings. And this evangelist was blind. And the characteristic was he could stand in a meeting, a blind man, say, I see a woman over there in a red uh, blouse. I, I see someone sitting over there in a blue hat and, and gave words of knowledge. And we thought if we could get Rolf Carlson to come to our church, you know, that would be the event of the year. So we called him and he agreed to come. And we, uh, this was before the internet, so we couldn't do any uh, advertising other than in the newspaper. But we announced that we were going to see miracles in Olborg. And uh, we printed 5,000 of his book and gave it out to the neighborhood. 
and we're so excited we're going to see miracles in Holborn. But two weeks before the event, I got a fax from Austria that Rolf Carlson had died suddenly when he was out jogging one day. And don't ask me how a blind man can jog, run. Okay. <laughs> we gathered our elders, the leaders, what should we do? And someone suggested a substitute. But where do you find a blind evangelist who can, <laughs> who, who can you know, <laughs> do these things? So that was quite difficult. And, well, let's cancel the meetings. That would be the easiest, you know. But then suddenly something rose in me and the Spirit of God spoke to me and said, who is it who heals? It is not a person. It is Jesus. So we decided to continue, and I volunteered to preach. And the second evening in that day, in 1982, I'll never forget, because that changed our church in one single evening. We had a lady in our church who had multiple sclerosis. She'd been sitting in a wheelchair for 14 years. We prayed for her so many times. She was Norwegian. Her name was Vesla. And that evening as I finished preaching and I went before the church, I went over to the window here and she was sitting here in her wheelchair. As soon as I passed her, the whole wheelchair started shaking. And I went over to the other side and when I came back, it happened again. The wheelchair started shaking. And I went, took another round, you know, I came back and thought, what is happening? So I went over to her and said, Vesla, if you believe that this is the night Jesus is going to heal me, grab my hand and stand up. And she came as a rocket out of that wheelchair. And she started running around the church. Running, running, running. Totally healed. They live five miles away from the church. And she told her husband, don't drive me home. I'm going to walk home tonight. She walked home five miles after not using her limbs in 14 years. And that's impossible according to science. But God did a miracle and it changed the situation totally. She woke up in the morning. She was so frightened because he said, Oh, the floor is so far away. <laughs> you know, she'd been sitting in a wheelchair all these years. And it triggered a revival in our church that continued for months and months and months and People were saved, and, and once again, a pastor. This is what I'm. This is what I've been longing for. This, and then in the on the peak of this revival, God said, "Move to Africa." And I said, "Oh, not again." And I asked God why, and He says, "I don't want you to attach the revival to yourself or your name." So, 1985, we packed our things and went to Tanzania with four kids. And we had this longing, God, we want to see revival. We want to see nations change, and, and we want to do this. And I was involved in, in uh, training, leadership, training of leadership and a lot of things. And we experienced God. You know, in a missionary family, I used to tell people growing up in a missionary family, it's like you're, you're constant in a training school. And I was so happy to hear Jesse's going to... to uh, Kyrgyzstan, and he's brought up in a missionary family, and you know, it's like if you're together with people who have a cold or a flu, and they sneeze and <coughs> cough on you, you probably get it. <laughs> and, and I believe growing up in a, in, a, in, in a family where Jesus is the center, our kids, they will get affected by this. 
and they would love to serve Jesus. And that's how I had it, you know. And my kids, the same. So we uh, lived in, in the miraculous. Uh, one of my daughters was bitten by a puff adder, one of these very poisonous snakes. And uh, we had no access to a doctor or hospital. And the doctors later told us, normally when the leg swells up, there's only one thing to do, and that's to amputate the leg uh, if you want the kid to survive. But we had nothing to, to do. So my wife, she sat with Natasha all night, and the girl was screaming, and her leg was swollen and changed colors. But she just said, Father, in the name of Jesus, you have promised us never to leave us. And in the morning, Natasha was totally healed and out praying, uh, playing with her fellow kids again. And seeing so many times, I, I think the first time I, we, we, we were here together with Paul, I told this story, just, uh, just to give you an impression of the variety of miracles that God can do and miracles that I haven't heard of before. So I'll, I'll, I'll just name some of those things that I haven't read about before. And my, my, my family and I, we were going on a vacation to Kenya, to Mombasa, which is at the coast. And when we finished there, we went to Nairobi. And in an old Land Rover, I say, I don't know why missionaries always have old Land Rovers. <laughs> but that's what they do in Africa, at least. So last year, I was more under the car than in the car, <laughs> if you understand what I mean. Uh, well... The car broke down in the middle of the Savo National Park in Kenya, which is lion country. There are no villages, no people. They're not allowed anybody to be there. And the front propeller shaft fell off the Land Rover, loosened. And normally I have tools in my car, but in Mombasa we had replaced shock observers the day before at the workshop, and they had stolen all my tool and my toolbox. So here was I, lying under the car. My wife and the kids were under in the shade of a tree, and Dennis, my oldest son, and I were under the car, scratching our heads. What can we do? We can't do anything without tools, you know. And we can't go with this propeller shaft just, you know, being pulled uh, on the ground. And I heard my wife pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. And you know, there's power in that name. There's power in that name. And suddenly, I saw a man standing just outside my car in a blue overall. And I came, crept out under the car and we greeted. He said, how can I help you? And I said, oh, I, you know, it's like, you know, the story of Biliam and the donkey. He didn't even react that the donkey talked to him, you know. <laughs> and I didn't even react. Here's a man and there is no people here. So I said, well, I have no tools. And then he said, look at my pockets. He had six pockets in his overall full of tools in the middle of nowhere. And he crept under the car and he fixed it in two minutes. And I was there, my son was there, and he crept out and we followed him and he was gone. My wife said, that's the first time I've seen a black angel. <laughs> and uh, I said, the first time I could see an angel who could repair a car and, and travels with tools, you know. And the angel didn't have any wings, by the way. <laughs> I, I could tell you lots of stories. Even angels come at... In, and, and I don't know why uh, I've seen them a couple of times repairing my car <laughs> and when I went to thank them they were gone they didn't even leave their business card <laughs> but it's been it, it, it just opened my mind that my God he is unlimited 
There are no boundaries for what God he can do. 1988, uh, I'll have to run through this because I could keep you here until Christmas, I think. <laughs> you know, the th But you have to tell a couple of the stories I'll of the Muslims. Muslims. Yeah, I'll come to that, yeah. Um, I, I, I've written a book in Danish, and it, right now we're working on it, so hopefully next year when we come back, the book will be here. It's called Bitter Coffee and Sweet Dates. Well, uh, 1988, there was a terrible situation in the region we lived. It hadn't rained for three years, so the people who are small-scale farmers had no food. And what do you do when you come to people who have no food or are starving? You can't just start preaching. You have to lay the Bible aside and preach without words by giving them food. And to make a st long story short, we started praying and sending out letters to governments and embassies and uh, NGOs and churches and Christian organizations and ended up feeding 35,000 people in the district of Magnoni. And... Uh, especially going out to the schools because no kids, only 30% of the kids were back in school. The rest were out digging for roots or trying to find berries to survive. So we had a program. We started making uh, food at the schools so they could come back, and all the kids came back to school and had a daily meal. Well, this became so... Uh, it, it just grew over our heads. So my oldest son, Dennis, and his wife and two small kids came out, and he was going to supervise this and organize it and we would give out to Christians but also to Muslims 35% of the population are Muslim in Tanzania what I just call moderate Muslims and they would have food and people would ask themselves why are these Christians giving us food and they would say oh this is the love of God they want to share but I want to share with you another spectacular incident that happened the Muslims in the area had built a new mosque. And at the inauguration, they called to imams from Dar es Salaam to come and inaugurate the building. They put speakers outside and so everybody could hear. But instead of doing their normal stuff and inaugurating it to Allah, they started accusing their fellow Muslims. Why have you accepted food from the Christians? Why have you accepted the seed they give you? Don't you know they just want to trick you into their religion? Don't you know that this is... Uh, you know, um, they are—they just want to deceive you. Then the local Muslim imam, the leader of the mosque, stood up and said to these guys, what have you done to help us? If these Christians and missionaries hadn't helped us, we wouldn't have been here today. And then he turned around and faced the whole congregation, about 400 people, and said, why should we listen to these guys who are accusing those who helped us in a crisis? So the whole congregation marched out of the mosque even before the inauguration and left the two Muslim imams alone in the mosque. And the leaders of the village, the chairman and the other leaders who are not Christians, they came and they escorted them to the train station and said, you're not wanted here because you accuse the friends that helped us in a crisis. Two days later, it had been raining all night. There was a knock on my door in the morning. They came and said, Mchunkaji, which means pastor, come and see what happened. And they took me over to the mosque. And this huge mosque had collapsed as if there had been an earthquake in the night. 
the roof was on the ground. The walls were just as the walls of Jericho. <laughs> they, you know, they came tumbling down. But the mudden huts all around in the village were untouched by the rain. The leader came to me. His wife and his kids were there. And he said, no one needs to preach about the true God. It's obvious who is the true God. And the next Sunday, we baptized 70 people, most of them from the Muslim community. Wow. And, you know, here you're on top now. You're feeling, wow, people came in the night. They wanted to receive Jesus. But then from being on the highest mountain, I fell into the lowest valley. My son suddenly died one night. Dennis, 30 years old. He was a marathon runner. There's nothing wrong with him. No disease, no cause of the death. They did an autopsy in Copenhagen. And uh, I was so devastated. I could not continue. It was as if I say, the lights went out and I collapsed. Couldn't continue after seeing this devastation of hunger and transporting so many people to the hospitals and many died and a lot of them survived because of the, the relief work, but I gave up. We took a sabbatical. We came to Dallas for a year, Christ for the Nations. They gave us scholarships of so the whole family and my daughter-in-law and the two grandchildren, all of us could be together for one year. It took me 18 months before I could preach again. I was not able to. But after 18 months, I felt God said once in a session where these leaders uh, in, the, in the school were praying for us, I am anointing you for revival. Go back and I'll be with you. Came back to Denmark and the fire of God was burning in me. And I'll never remember the, 18th, the 11th of January 2004. We've been in a period where our longing is to see the things that God once had done again. We want revival, to see nations change, people change. We want to see this. And I, as after I handed out the, the communion, the power of God hit me and I was, I, I just fell behind the altar and was gone for more than three hours. I don't know what happened in the service. I don't know who closed and how they got home. But I felt a weight of glory coming over me and pressing me so hard to the floor. And I started, I had a vision of Jesus. And I started crying because of all the sins that I've ever done. And even those I had never done. I confessed everything to be sure. But the, mo the thing I cried the most of was the sin of division in the body of Christ. And I cried and I said, God, your body is so divided. Your body is so sick. Your body has no power. Forgive us our divisions. Forgive us the divisions among our denominations and churches and even within the churches. And uh, for the next 14 three days or three weeks, I was not able to be with people. I had this weight of glory over me. It triggered a revival. It started and it went on for some time. Day and night on Sundays, we had so many people who, you know, back to the times of glory once more. And uh, I said, wow, oh, this is it. It's back. But then 
the leaders of the church, a church I had fathered for more than 20 years, they said, this is not what we want. So in order not to create a conflict, I chose to leave the church. And that was so hurtful because this is what I wanted, but not what they wanted. So I said, God, you just... 14 days later, my wife was diagnosed lung cancer. And uh, we fought for 14 months. Believing, you know, this was the most natural thing to believe for healing because we'd seen so many miracles. We'd seen many, many people with cancer or AIDS or things like that healed, many blind people healed, many crippled people healed. We've seen it, so it was the most natural thing. This was just the most easy case for God. But when she died, after 30 years of marriage, and what a marriage, we had six kids, I was devastated. I went into the deepest, deepest valley, and the lights went out. I said, in the Garden of Eden, God went around and called Adam. Where are you, Adam? I know you're here, but Adam, he had hidden himself. Now I'm in the garden. I know God is there, but God, why, God, have you hidden yourself? I couldn't find God. And I prayed. I've been, I've, I've been so close to Jesus all of my life. I've seen, you know, the most spectacular things, and suddenly it was as if my best friend, Jesus, he, he chose to hide himself. I went into a period of six years of grief. I couldn't, I left ministry, couldn't go back to Africa. I, I wasn't able to face a group like here this morning and even say anything. I didn't lose my faith. And all my kids, thanks to God and to Jenny's prayers, she prayed for them. And all of them love Jesus and are serving him today. Uh, but I couldn't continue. And uh, I worked for the government. I worked with integration. I worked as a Swahili translator, and I worked with refugees. And then there was a Swedish company who wanted to, to me to be a safari guide in Africa. And I said, no, I would never go back to Africa. But they continued, and... I went up to Stockholm and took my first 24 guests to Africa. The idea was one week showing them all the animals, well, not all the animals, but <laughs> what kind of the animals in Africa. And I thought I was qualified because I knew the difference between a giraffe and a, and a mouse. Uh, so, so maybe, you know, here's this. So I agreed and we came to a hotel in Arusha the first evening and they were sitting in a circle and suddenly one of them asked me, how come that you speak Swahili? And it was after six years not being able to communicate about Jesus as if you open a bottle of champagne or Coca-Cola, all the gas just came up. And from my inside, testimony after testimony started coming out. And I, I, I was smiling for the first time in six years. And I was telling people about my beloved Jesus. And I was telling them story. And it continued three weeks. Every evening after dinner, they said, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more, tell us more, you know. <laughs> I had a Swedish lady who said, do you mind if I call you my guru? <laughs> she didn't know there were Swedish heathen, didn't know anything, you know. So, 
Uh, my, I stayed in, in Africa and waited for the next trip to uh, people to come out. And, and uh, the next trip, when I, I had my first guest, I told them this story I just told you about Natasha, who was healed uh, when we prayed to her after being bitten by a very poisonous snake. And we had this lady in the group who said, Axel, I don't believe you. She was a very sophisticated lady from Stockholm. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in prayer. And I don't believe what you're telling us. And I was supposed to be with her for six, three weeks. You know, so I just said, well, I'm, I'm not trying to impose something or impact you with anything. I'm just telling my story. So it's okay. Two, three days later, I went to the Serengeti, which is a national park in Tanzania, where we have all these animals. And I want my guests to have the most, uh, you know, the, the, the best experience. So we don't sleep in hotels, but in tents. So, and, 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 and in, the, in, the, in the dry season, be, uh, you know, the grass is always greener just around the tent. So the buffaloes will come in the night, you know, and, and move the tent. And so it's quite a good experience for them. And, and, and this evening after dinner in a place called the Wilderness Camp, we were out in the wilderness, actually. We're sitting there around the, bo- the fire, and I was telling stories, and a lion suddenly roared. You know, in Swahili we say, when a lion roars, who would play around? No one plays around. And a lion can be heard on miles, at miles, distance of miles, you know. And when it comes close, it's like a minor earthquake. A- actually, it is. And I, all my guests, they took their chairs and took a step closer to the fire and sat down. And I continued. Then the lion roared the second time. And they went as close as they could to the fire. When, and I'm telling this actually happened. When the lion roared the third time, and it was loud, this same lady who three days ago has said, I don't believe in you, I don't believe in God, I don't believe... She said, guys, I want to tell you I've started to believe in God. <laughs> so God, he has humor. <laughs> and, you know, and I could tell story after story of what, things like this, what happens, you know. Um, well... Tell one more uh, incredible story about another mosque. There, there was one you told that uh, it's hard to believe these stories because they're so powerful. Yeah. About uh, it was related to a mosque, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Well, what happened then? This brought me back to Africa. And I had actually in my years of darkness thought that my life was wasted. Everything I did as a pastor, as a missionary, wasted. No result. You know, you can get into a deep, deep dark pit where you don't believe you're worth anything and I felt my life was useless but then in Africa I heard stories people came and told me you preached and I got saved and you taught at a bible college where I became a pastor and so 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 I started to get this feeling 2013 now we're back in Africa and you have to know that Tanzania in all of East Africa and Central Africa has been the most peaceful nation no riots, no political instability, no civil wars, uh, all these years. But suddenly, I sensed that things were changing. We had traditionally lived with 35% of the moderate Muslims in our country. We've been friends with them, we've been sharing the gospel, there's been no problems. But now the spirit of the Al-Shabaab, the spirit of Al-Qaeda, of Boko Haram and the ISIS had come into our country. I was in Dar es Salaam, when 14 churches were set ablaze in two hours. I was on the island of Zanzibar when two Catholic priests were assassinated. 
I was in Mwanza at Lake Victoria when one of our pastors close to that city was slaughtered, butchered, actually, on a marketplace. And radical is, uh, Muslim imams started on TV proclaiming, it's time for jihad. It's time to kill the infidels. And we'll start with those who are wearing these white colors, the priests and pastors. And a frightening spirit came over our country. And they were proclaiming, we're going to take over. And by the way, do you know that in 1989, there were Muslim leaders from all over the world gathered in Abuja, Nigeria. And they made the Abuja Declaration, which said by 2025, all of Africa would be Muslim. All the nations of Africa would be governed by Muslim presidents and by the Sharia. And they were provoked by the German evangelist, Reinhard Bonke, who had a vision. He saw blood-washed Africa from Cape Town to Cairo, uh, to Cairo, all of Africa. So these Muslim leaders were provoked and said, we are going to take this nation. And we had had 10 years under the rule of the Muslim president. And before the 10 years of Jekaya Kikwete, you would never see many women who had the uh, the hijab or the niqab uh, but now after 10 years of his rule you sit everywhere mosques were built everywhere in Tanzania even places where there are no Muslims it's because the Muslims they worship the jinns as they call them the evil spirit and a Muslim imam would go into a, a mosque where there are no people and he would say salam alaikum to the left and salam alaikum to the right and he would bow down for these jinns the evil spirits you know, and uh, uh, Muhammad Gaddafi from Libya, he sent millions and millions and millions to build mosques in Tanzania. And now Saudi Arabia has taken over that job. They're building mosques alone, just as a proclamation, you know. So what happened was, when they started now killing, and the Al-Shabaab had training camps in Tanzania, I have seen the training camps where young Muslim terrorists are trained to overtake and I was so burdened. And I said, God, what's happening to my country? And suddenly God spoke to me and said, go back to Africa and unite my people. And he gave me a vision. How can we heal the wounds in a nation if the body of Christ is wounded and divided? And I got the verse, if my people would call by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I'll hear from heaven and I'll forgive the sins and heal the land. And suddenly I saw the healing of the land. But how can a sick church heal a sick nation? We have to heal the sick church. And I went back to Africa the 4th of April 2013. I had my first reconciliation conference in the Doma at a hotel. And I said, I'm sent to you. You don't know me. I'm a white man, but don't be deceived. Actually, I'm black. <laughs> it's just my, 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 my skin. My heart is bleeding for this nation. And I gathered 66 bishops from all denominations that first day, and I poured out my heart. And by this time, I said, as well as it's time to unite the body of Christ, to pray for the healing of the nation, it's also time to love our enemies. And now is the time to love the Muslims. Now is the time. It's easy to say I love an enemy when you don't see the enemy and don't know what he's going to do. But when you know who the enemy is, then 
we have to remember that Christ not only said, forgive your enemies, he said, love your enemies. And uh, there was an Anglican bishop who stood up and said, I had prepared my people and my pastors for a religious war. I told them to buy weapons and guns and to sleep with machetes under their pillows to prepare for this war. But after hearing you today, he said, I'm going back to my people to tell them, now it's time to love and get rid of those weapons. We're not going to fight. We're going to love them. Love them to Jesus. And I stand here before you today with a testimony, and we're going to tell just a couple of them, that when we love, we release the power of Jesus. And it's so powerful. And we've had, since then, 2013, I have traveled uh, more than 120,000 miles I've had more than 10,000 leaders and bishops gathering together. And some places I came to, the Christian pastors didn't like each other. And they said it. We, don't, we have 35 churches in this city. We don't like each other. We don't have any fellowship. So often I felt that God called me to the right places. And sometimes we've had, like in, in Bukoba, the western part of Tanzania, we had a conference for over 100 leaders. And two hours after we closed our conference, six churches were set ablaze, and all those leaders had been to that conference. So the Muslims, they want to take over, and they're going to do it, they believe. But we have seen when the Church of Christ rises together, something happens. We can change the situation of any nation and the destiny of any nation when we pray. And uh, now we're experiencing revival. I could say revival in the Muslim communities. And do you know that this is the greatest revival among Muslims has ever been in all the history of the world? An American man, a missionary called David Garrett, has written a book, The Wind in the House of Islam. Uh, he speaks about the Middle East, and he says in that book, more people have come to Christ the last 10 years than the previous 1,400 years. There is a wave and a wind that is going over these nations right now. And some years ago, only three years ago, I met one of these radical Muslims who had been traveling all over East Africa and telling about it's time to kill, it's time for the jihad. And he came to me and he told me this story. One night I had a dream. Jesus came to me and said, Ramadan, why are you persecuting me? And he took a stick and he chased Jesus away in the dream and called him Satan, get out of my life. It happened three times, the same dream, the same result. Then he said, then you know Jesus didn't appear to me for three months. But one day, when I was walking on the streets of Kigoma, Kigoma is that city where Henry Morton Stanley met Dr. Livingston many, many years ago and said, Dr. Livingston, I presume, yes. on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. One day I was walking on that in the city and suddenly Jesus came towards me physically. I saw Jesus physically. And he came and said, Ramadan, I've tried to talk to you in dreams three times and you chased me away and you called me Satan. Why are you persecuting me? And he fell down and accepted Christ. And they issued a fatwa, that's a death sentence from his home uh, mosque in Kigoma. So he had to flee and hide himself for three months in the western parts of Tanzania. And his father was one of those who issued the fatwa against his own son. But God, he saved him. And God, he called him. And seven, eight, eight weeks ago, he came and visited Jenny and I in our home. And he told us this story. I want to tell you what's going on right now in Tanzania. 
Are you ready for it? Could you fasten your seatbelts, please? It's going to be rough, <laughs> but I promise you a soft landing. He said, in one of the major cities of Tanzania, the imam over all the imams, that would be like an archbishop, he has become a Christian through this Ramazan. And the, the imams of the three largest mosques have accepted Christ now through this system they call the Discover Bible Studies. You're probably acquainted with it. And then he said, and right now, 75% of all the Muslim believers in those mosques are believing Christians. It's an earthquake. It is so wild. It's happening right now as I stand here. It's still undercover. And the, the, the interesting thing is, the Muslims in East Africa are scratching their heads right now and they're saying, why are so many Muslims becoming Christians or fleeing to Christ? So they gathered in Arusha and they wanted to appoint five leaders should, that would research and investigate why Muslims are being Christians. And this imam who was over the other imams told my friend Ramadan, who is an evangelist undercover, you have to come to this meeting where they're going to choose these people. And he said, no, that's too dangerous. And he said, no, God has a plan, you just come. So when they chose the five leaders who are going to right now investigate, my friend Ramazan was chosen as the chairman of the committee. <laughs> it's insane. And the vice president of that, or the chairman, is an evangelist from Dar es Salaam called Daniel. Wow. They don't know that they're Christians. <laughs> It's happening right now. We, we, need, we need to pray because this is dangerous. It's very dangerous. But we hear the same thing all over the world. And right now, since the revolution in Egypt, four million Muslims have accepted Jesus through the Discover Bible studies. It's happening in Indonesia. It's happening all over. And I just wanted just two, two last things. Sometimes when traveling and working with this, you feel you're so exhausted. Sometimes there's so many uh, things that are happening, Satan trying to kill me. It happened even some two, just two years ago. I was lying on my deathbed in Africa thinking it was over. That was actually when I said to myself, maybe it's time to get married. <laughs> who, who could else, who could else <laughs> you know, <laughs> tell my kids that? I died. <laughs> so then I started thinking about Jenny. And well, uh, I was leaving Africa three, three years ago. I've been working with this. And I, I, I came to this um, church. I had a seminar. And it wasn't a reconciliation seminar, just an ordinary. And we switched the generator off in the evening. And I met a man from the Barabak tribe. The Barabak tribe is one of the most... Uh, um, fierce and hostile tribes just for 20 years ago they would kill they had to kill a lion or a, a man to prove that they could get married and often it would be a stranger and this man he came there in the darkness he was branded like we brand cattle you know with hot iron all over his face and he, his earlobes were you know pierced and right down to his his uh, shoulders and suddenly he came and said I have walked for two days and two nights to see you, or three days and three nights. I saw you on a screen, and God showed me I should come and talk to you. So I've walked over the trails. There wasn't any road. 
And I heard you tonight speak and you, you said the same as I heard on the screen. And you're wearing the same clothes as I saw on the screen. I've come to tell you three things. What you are doing is not your own idea. Number two, continue. Do not give up. And he said the third thing. If you continue, you will save this nation from Islam. He turned around and disappeared. A few weeks later, I was in California. In Paso Robles. I was, having, I, was teach, I, I was speaking to a ministerial association with pastors from all the churches at a golf club. And uh, as I finished talking about reconciliation, the necessity of the body of Christ being one and coming together and forgiving each other and rise to pray for the nation. A man came over to me. I was sitting at a table. Now, remember what I said last week about the gift of tongues? It's a language. Listen to this. He put his hand on my shoulder and said, I feel that I should pray in tongues over you. And I closed my eyes and he started speaking Swahili. Oh. And I couldn't close my eyes now. So I looked at him. And he said in the most fluent Swahili, I have given you the mandate and the authority to do what you are doing right now. That's what he said. Three times. And as soon as he stopped, I wanted to talk to him. I said, do you know what you said? He said, no, I was just speaking in tongues. <laughs> So I knew that God had called me back on track and he'd called me for a special purpose. And I have this fire burning in me right now to see God change nation after nation. So if, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you would say to me then, Paul, you have a desire to go to Tanzania. You don't know people there. How are you going to be able to make any inroads? Who might you suspect God would put me in touch with that will personally go with me when I'm in Tanzania? I don't know if there's one person in Tanzania that could do what he is doing. And God has been so kind to me to say we can do it together. Yeah. That's, that's how kind he is to me. Uh, we get to go together in, in uh, we're going to have two different conferences of three days each with pastors and bishops and maybe archbishops, I don't know. But, uh, and he's put me in touch with uh, uh, African uh, PhD who did his PhD in Islam. And so we're going we're gonna to work together. In, in November. Hmm. So God was really gracious to me, wasn't he? Amen. So pray for us, please. And now, wherever we travel, we see God uniting, united. He's uniting his people. Uh, the names of our denomination, I see, does not mean anything. And I, I, I usually say what Jesus said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And love is more important than any theology. Love and unification in his church. So we can rise in the spirit to pray against the powers of evil. Yes. And I believe no nation will be able to stand. No evil forces, no powers of ISIS, even if they are now trying to do what they are doing. Uh, God 
is ruling. And this man, Ramazan, he actually said the first meeting, he laid his hand on me and he said, I want to tell you that I thank God for ISIS and for Al-Shabaab because, because of their brutality, millions are fleeing into the arms of Jesus right now. So, we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to give you the benediction. But I'd like Jenny to come up because I'd like us to do with them what we do for people, lay hands on them and pray for them. But I know you've been very...